I occupy a weird little pocket of the workforce because my work is all about, well, work. Between what I do as a consultant and what I do on here, on this podcast, my time in the office or the home office is spent thinking about how can we work better? It's like that movie Inception, but instead of dreams within dreams, it's about work, about work, about, and there's no Leonardo DiCaprio, sadly. It can be a bit confusing and even a bit isolating, but thankfully, I'm not alone. Lisa Leong is another star of this Work Life Inception remake and also a very good friend of mine. Lisa started her career in law, but decided that, of course, she was actually meant to be a DJ. You know, that old chestnut. She is now the host of the ABC radio show and podcast, This Working Life, where she examines all facets of the working world, from how to utilise daily routines through to the credibility of research data. And she's recently written a book of the same name that gathers all of her findings in a sort of field guide for your career. So how does someone that thinks about work for a living approach her own work life? And what are the rituals that Lisa has tried out that have actually stuck? And when it comes to career, what process did Lisa use to work out what she was truly, truly passionate about? My name is Dr. Amantha Imber. I'm an organisational psychologist and the founder of behavioural science consultancy Inventium. And this is How I Work, a show about how to help you do your best work. So a lot of people talk about work-life balance, which is a term that has never really resonated with me. And it's never really resonated with Lisa either. Instead, Lisa likes to think about it as work-life coherence. So my curiosity is around a lot of words and frameworks like work-life balance, where my question is, is this, is this a help or is this, does this hinder us in any way? I feel like work-life balance hinders me. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason why it hinders me is because I just get confused. I'm like, well, which part is work and which part is life? <laughs> you know, like when I'm reading a nonfiction book because I'm interested in it and I'm going to be doing an interview about it and I do it on the weekend, and do I have bad work-life balance or not? So I found it hard. The lawyer in me also goes, what does balance mean? How do you define that? And do you lock it in? Because you can't lock it in because every week's different. So... <laughs> <laughs> With that in mind, I, we were just trawling around for a different concept, which is kinder. And there is new research on heart coherence, which at its essence is, you may have heard of the heart rate variability if you're a sporting person. And, you know, so you can monitor your health by looking at your heart rate variance. And actually, heart rate variance is about variability. Like you actually want it to be a living, breathing thing and you want to have a lot of flexibility in it. And so I found it helpful to think of work-life coherence as being a uh, equivalent to a check-in. It's like a, a check-in with my heart rate variability is, you know, how am I feeling health-wise? And in a way, work-life coherence is, how is this feeling and what can I tweak 
to make myself feel like I am just sort of living (laughs) in a way which isn't exhausting. So would you ask yourself that every morning? Like, do I feel like I have work-life coherence? Is that what that looks like? Yeah, so I have a morning routine which goes for about 10 hours. And <laughs> and I want to ask about that, yes. <laughs> yeah, well, okay, so it was 10 hours in COVID lockdowns, but now that we have to do things outside, actually it's not 10 hours anymore, it's like one hour. But part of it is like journaling and gratitude. And when I am doing my journaling and gratitude, I do actually check in nearly every day with how is this feeling and am I getting this coherence right? Does this feel right? I want to ask something because it, like selfishly it relates to me. Uh, what what I find, even though I don't do a standard nine to five hour day, I still struggle sometimes with the guilt about not doing that. Like this morning, for example, I don't have my daughter with me at the moment. She's with me 50% of the time. And when I don't have Frankie, I start work quite early. So I think I started work at 6.30 a.m. this morning and I spent, I don't know, two and a half hours on the copy edit for my book, uh, which um, is which is which is in equal parts uh, amazing but painful. And then I had a session with my personal trainer and that was at about 9.30 and then I got back home and I did some final prep for our interview and now we, we from 11 to 12 this morning are recording this on a Monday. And when I was at the gym with my trainer, there's just this vague sense of guilt that it's like, hang on, it's 9.30 on a Monday morning and I am not contactable. And I know, I know in my head that it's like this is totally fine and this is just how I work and, you know, me and my team would preach this to, to our clients. But there's still that slight sense of guilt and I want to know, can you relate to that? And if so, how have you worked to overcome that? I think it's very natural to have feelings of all, especially when you're a hard worker, you know, to have that sense of am I using every minute of the day. (laughs) I spoke to someone, Rob Cross. Um, Have you spoken to him? So he does great research on well-being and work and he spoke about collaboration overload. And one of the things he spoke about was he has this factor of accomplishment. It drives him. And so when he has five minutes, he thinks, oh, how can I cram six hours into this five minutes that I have spare? So he has to sort of watch that. And I think each of us have the thing that sometimes is our story or gets in the way. And yours happens to be guilt. I don't know whether I would describe mine as guilt, but I would certainly pack a lot into my day. And so it's to just repeat to myself when I am switching off that little mantra that I have of I am enough, that is enough, <laughs> you know, now it's time to switch off and be okay with that. Thank you for that two-minute therapy session, Lisa. That's very appreciated. <laughs> now let's talk about routines because you do have 
a I was going to say complex, but it's not. It's I guess it's a it's a multi-part morning routine which you have made habitual. So, can you talk about what that is and also importantly how you actually made those habits stick? Okay, so I think can I just have it's not it's certainly not a disclaimer, but it's just this is absolutely individual. And the reason why I put that is because when I wrote an article on my routines, I start ridiculously early and the news item became everyone needs to start really early <laughs> their morning routines and it literally went that was that was because <laughs> um, obviously nobody read the article, they just read the first part. <laughs> they just read the headline. But isn't that how you read an article? You just read the headline and then you've got it. <laughs> and then it all went away. It's like get up at 5 a.m. Otherwise you're terrible. And I thought, oh, wow, that's certainly not what I said. So follow your circadian rhythm. So the most important thing is understand yourself and know are you an early starter or not? I am. So I tend to start my morning routine, say, at 5 a.m. That is naturally when I get up. So I'm not actually setting an alarm or I'll wake up before an alarm. So I start at 5 a.m. When I started this, I think the most important thing about habits is start small. So atomic habits or tiny habits or micro habits, whatever you want to call it. And what we mean by starting small is literally do one thing and build it out from the time you wake up. So you wake up and you put your feet on the floor um, as you are waking up. What is the next thing that you're going to do? And then that's called habit stacking. So first of all, bring awareness to what you usually do when you wake up in the morning. When I ask, about 50% of people will say, I grab my phone. And so all I ask is, is that a help or a hindrance? Because you might need to look at your phone first thing in the morning. And so job done, well done. If you don't want to anymore and you think, oh, this is a habit, but I actually think I might be better off without it because I notice that my heart races because I have an email from my team members asking me lots and lots of questions, then you might say, maybe I won't do that. So I might try a different thing. So it might be that I'm going to wake up and the first thing I'm going to do is just do some cat-cow stretches right near my bed. So I started off because I got really sick. Um, I, I, You know what? I didn't realize it at the time. I was probably burnt out. I know that seems weird. I just collapsed basically on a holiday and got shingles and then uh, secondary nerve damage. So when I was recovering from that, I started doing mindfulness. And so initially my morning routine was to do that practice, which was 20 minutes at the time. And then I used to go to yoga. So that was, and then I just got used to having a morning routine and now it's like morphed into an all singing, all dancing morning routine, which has multi elements because I'm always trying different things as well. And so it's kind of fun as I'm like experimenting with myself. Like at the moment, I've reversed my biological age. I'm actually getting younger. What? How? How have you done that? No, I was joking. I was joking. But I reckon I'm turning 50 and I really do want to be feeling like I am not going backwards. (laughs) (laughs) Because last year I started, somebody told me that, you know, you start 
you see your life and you're ripening at one end and then you're rotting Oh, on the other end, and then it, that <laughs> set me in this very negative kind of mindset of, "Am I rotting? Am I rotting now?" And so I've decided that I'm going to anti-rot. <laughs> and so I've I've actually changed a bit of my morning routine, Amantha. So I am doing a bit of personal training too, like not training people, but getting personally trained. <laughs> Sorry, that came out weird. Um, so and because. I I actually had a back injury from too much Zoom stuff, <laughs> right? I know. And uh, the doctor said, you you know, you have ligament, muscle, ligament, and I call it a ligament sandwich and you've got no filling because oh. I have no muscle. <laughs> and so I'm like, I need to find my muscle. So this year Lisa finds her muscle. Are there any gadgets or software or tools that you're using to track your progress other than obvious things like output with weights, for example? Oh, with the personal training? Okay. Well, yeah, with the physical side of not wanting to rot, I guess. I have my sleep tracking device, which is a ring. So your Aura ring? Yes. Yep, O-U-R-A. I've got mine on at the moment and it's told me it needs a battery charge this morning. Yes. Yes, I'm strict with that. I use that a lot to monitor my sleep, which I say is, you know, it's pretty much, much my fundamental block. Um, and then I have been using my symptoms, which is a food tracker. But what you do is you put in all the food and then you put in all your symptoms. So, you know, am I, have I got a headache today or, you know, which part of my body is feeling a bit <laughs> sore? And, uh, you know, do I have a frog in my throat this morning from eating a lot of cream yesterday? Tick. And then, <laughs> so then I monitor it and then I go, oh, wow, I really should stop doing that. Um, and then what else? So what else do I do? What else do I do? Oh, well, with the um, time blocking my calendar, then I have a pretty good feel for what was the balance in my day and what was the effect on everything as well. Because you colour code, is that right? Oh, yeah. Can you tell me about that? Okay. So if you look at my calendar, you could be frightened because every hour is accounted for. So it looks scary. However, the colour codes make it okay. (laughs) So blue is actually kind of space in my calendar, but because I've scheduled it in, it's just got a block of space. And so the block of space could be transit and I commute by e-bike. So all of those beautiful blue blocks in my diary are actually me enjoying my bike ride as I'm going between events or between activities. So that's blue. There's a lot of blue in my calendar. Actually, there's a lot of other things. And then ABC, so that's orange. So, you know, I'll know, okay, I've got these interviews. And so my eye is now accustomed to knowing, you know, where the interviews are in my diary because it's orange. And then the book was red. (laughs) So, you know, I had red there. And then yellow is like social activities. So there was not a lot of yellow in my diary at one point, but now there's more yellow. And then sometimes there's too much yellow, Amantha. So Lisa needs to tone it down. (laughs) So that's an example. Um, And then different projects might have different colours, although I am running out of colours in my Google Calendar, I must say. So we have a few duplicates. Uh, That's funny. I use colour coding. So I time block but not as extreme 
as you. So, but I do love using colors just so I can look at the week and get a sense as to am I like putting enough energy into the things that matter to me? Uh, so I use it as a bit of a check for that. Uh, and also just thinking about what kind of energy am I going to need for the day? So the main activities that don't go to the default color, which is a sort of a soft pastel purple, uh, yeah, is um, podcast interviews. So they are in blue. And what I call delivery, which generally is keynote speaking, whether that be virtual or starting to get back into face-to-face, which requires a different kind of energy, and then also sales meeting. So part of my job is sales or business development. And I like to know that I'm just doing regular activity with that because that obviously feeds into um, inventing. Yeah, Yeah. that's proactive. So they're the things that I color code at the moment. And I find that really very useful, like given given I am a, a time blocker or time boxer like you, but I like what you've done in terms of color coding non-work activities to see if you're almost having enough time for replenishment and rejuvenation and those sorts of things so and it means that meetings don't go in there over the top of a space that I really need yes yes I like that a lot and it's about how do you prioritize things as well so let's say you've decided okay so I really do you know health is the most important thing family is the most important thing, then I will go into my diary um, and make sure that they go in first. Mm. And then everything actually goes around that. So in my anti-rotting phase, I, you know, doctor appointments are really important and don't they just get, you know, delayed when you're not prioritising health. Mm -hmm. So they go in first. Mm. And then around that, you know, then I'll, start scheduling other things because, I mean, I can because I have control over my diary. So there is an autonomy thing. I mean, one of my questions is, you know, how much autonomy do you have? And I still believe, and this is what I call a compassionate challenge, that you probably have more autonomy than you think. So this idea of job crafting, so you can cognitively craft, you can relationship craft and you can task craft. If you look at those dimensions and you think, actually, how much budge do I have and, you know, do I need to have a conversation with my manager around it, I think that you might have a little bit more sway than you think if you can align it to the greater goals and the objectives especially. Okay, we will be back with Lisa soon, hearing about her shutdown ritual that she does with her whole family and also how she figured out what she was really passionate about and wanted to pursue in her career. And also, if you're enjoying this episode, maybe you might want to share it with a friend that you think it would be useful for. So to do that, just go to the little share icon wherever you are listening to this podcast from click on it and share it with someone that you think might find it useful. Now, you have what I think you refer to as a shutdown ritual that you do with your family. Can you tell me about that? At dinner time, when we all sit together, we do a practice that I heard from Penny Lacasso, our friend in common, and she did it with her son and it's called Rosebud Thorn. 
And so you nominate at the end of each day, what is something that happened which was really good? That's the rose. What's something you're looking forward to? That's the bud. And the thorn is something less than good that happened in your day that you want to share. And when I first suggested it to my now teenage daughter, I was wondering whether she would want to do it at all, but she loves it. And she often, when we sit down, she'll say Rosebud Thorn, and then we'll each nominate it. And it's a, re- it's a really nice way to catch up and rather than saying, how's your day? Good. <laughs> <laughs> how's your day? Or, uh, or hello, is anyone there? Uh, it's your mother. I'm right in front of you. I'll, I'll see you on TikTok. One of the things you talk about in your book, This Working Life, is not letting your work identity define you. And I could really relate to the struggle that you found with this because I have definitely let my work identity define me. So I wanted to know, how did you stop this from happening? Uh, When I studied at the Australian Film, Television and Radio School, so this was 2003, I was trained as a lawyer and so I was coming quite late to radio. I did the radio program. So I would have been, say, about 32 years of age. And the head of radio, Steve Ahern, just gave us this amazing piece of advice. He said, who will you be when the on-air light switches off? So the on-air light represents when you're recording or when you're broadcasting on air. And we were all doing the commercial radio um, program at afters. And so, you know, we were going to be setting off into the world to become radio DJs. And in radio particularly, you know, you can become your persona. An example of that in, is in SAFM. I mean, I had a persona called Lethal Lisa. And so, <laughs> you know, it's it's quite, and I was kind of a Z-Lift celebrity. So people would definitely know me. And so you can get a little bit hooked into that. Um, and so it was a really prescient cautionary reminder. And so I just always kept that with me. So it's very grounding to think, you know, this is a role, I'm doing this for now. And then, you know, one day I may pass the baton onto another. And for this time, I'm going to be really present and then really enjoy it. But I'm not going to make it become my whole identity so that I'm lethal Lisa on SAFM, you know, or... <laughs> Whatever my current role is. So it's just reminding myself about that. And I always hear it in my head. Now, something that people often ask when when someone is struggling with, you know, what what even is my identity? What should I be doing for work? Is they say, well, what are you passionate about? And I love the life flow exercise that you describe in the book to uncover what you're passionate about. Can you can you describe that exercise and what that was like for you? Yeah, so the life flow exercise came to me initially as a happiness graph and I completely thought I made this up myself, Amantha, but then <laughs> I found out like all good things that um, I had innovated something that actually was in existence before and during and after I came up with the happiness graph. <laughs> Many people call it the lifeline exercise and in the book we call it the life flow exercise because it's kind of more about ebbs and flows of life. 
So what it is, is uh, on the vertical line, you're like this, is um, a subjective kind of happiness or um, I guess positive and negative experiences, and that's on the vertical. And then on the horizontal, it's uh, as far back as you can remember to today um, and maybe grouping it in terms of five years or whatever increments are appropriate for your age. And then you subjectively will map out the peaks and the troughs of your life and then you take a step back and you look at for each peak what made it a peak? Who was I with? What was I doing? Um, what was I experiencing? And then same with the troughs, maybe even thinking about what was going on in that era at that time and then really looking for those themes. The reason why it's useful is because then you, with this hindsight, you can start to say, oh, I see a pattern for what makes something a peak or flow experience for me. Um, I can see in the troughs that, um, you know, something is coming out. I'll give you an example. So um, I was in law. I was loving what I was doing. It was in London. It was, I was an e-commerce lawyer, but the internet bubble burst. So I got sort of stuck in these airless rooms and it became very demoralizing. So I said to myself, look, money isn't everything I need to go for something which is more meaningful to me, maybe talking about that passion side that you you had intimated just before. And then um, I, so I redesigned myself. I became a hospital radio presenter. I decided that, oh, my gosh, this is it. I've got to become a radio DJ. And we skipped forward to, you know, when I got into afters and it was definitely a peak experience. Now, here's the thing. Actually, when I was starting to do commercial radio, I would be on the air for six hours and I would actually come out and sometimes I would cry. What? Wow. And this was my dream job. And so doing the happiness graph helped me to identify, here's the rub, Amantha. When I was doing those six-hour shifts, I was actually on the weekends and I happened to be by myself in an airless, windowless room speaking to myself. And because I'm a people person, that's why I used to cry. And so it, it wasn't about which industry I was in. It was actually about am I collaborating? Am I surrounded with people I love doing things together that create a better whole, right? And so that has helped me in sort of saying yes to projects or maybe even pivots in my career to know that, Whatever I do, it needs to be with other people um, and it needs to be very creative and, you know, airless, windowless rooms are not very good for me by myself. So if there's other people there, that's all fine. This might get a bit smelly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, and I don't like, um, even I don't like talking to myself. <laughs> <laughs> Even I get sick of my own voice. <laughs> How very humble of you. Uh, now, when we're talking about purpose, I think something that relates to purpose is values. And I'd love to know, how did you figure out what your values were? Uh, I think my personal values probably have changed a lot over time. And in fact, my 21-year-old self would value not doing values. <laughs> 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 so, you know, all this introspection and uh, existential crises, of course, comes later in life. <laughs> so, I mean, over time, 
I think you stress test your values through life, right? And so even doing something like a life flow exercise, when I was looking at my peaks and troughs, it became apparent, oh, okay, so this is probably a pretty core value. So one of them is freedom. (laughs) And what do I mean by freedom? Well, it comes out in different ways, but certainly at work, it's quite a lot of autonomy. And even when I was working in large institutions, you know, like the ABC or big law firms, which I loved, even then I had crafted a role or I definitely blossomed in roles where I had a fair degree of autonomy. Even when I was a first-year lawyer, you know, I would be client-facing and I would actually already have quite a bit of autonomy. So I think understanding that that is a core value and that when I feel constrained, um, I'm not my best self. But how do you figure out your values? And I mean, I ask this from a place of I feel like I think about values a lot, but sometimes I really struggle to land on what are my values and what makes me unique. Like I hear a value like freedom and the psychologist in me thinks, well, yeah, autonomy is a fundamental motivator for every human being. So how do you how did you figure out your your specific values? Was there a test? Was there a process that you went through? Yeah, so there there are different ways to come up with values, and we really love the approach of um, Greta Bradman, uh, who is our expert in the book on values. And I think I love her approach because it's really practical. And so values, I think, come out of prioritization as well. So as you say, you know, you can look at a list of values and Greta uses a list. So she has, you know, a list of 50 odd values. And I found it helpful to go through that general list. And the first thing to do is just to strike out the ones that you're like, oh, that's not me. So, you know, looking at some of the values, I don't know whether I think hedonism is a value, wealth is a value, um, then we've got freedom. So they're all pretty general, but some are more um, applicable than others. So go with the ones that are definitely not you. So you strike them out first. Now, out of the list of 50, then you may have 40. So you keep on going through this process. And what I love about it is it's not about getting the right answer because it's more about what does this mean and what am I thinking about when I read the word freedom or wealth or whatever the word is, you know, what does it mean to me? Because actually it's just a process for, I don't know, just testing yourself and testing yourself in terms of going, hey, I wonder what would happen if I tried this value on for size. And then you get your list and then what you're aiming at is to try and hone it down to five values And I feel like it's a really good opportunity to have a chat with someone who knows you well and maybe sort of say, oh, if I was going to personalise this value, um, what might that look like? I mean, one value I've been playing around with, Amantha, is creativity and uh, and curiosity. So I am innately um, curious. That is my driver for most things. But there's a slight sense of novelty that I like as well. So I enjoy beginner's mind. And so I was playing around for a couple of weeks about whether novelty is actually my value or, you know, what does that mean? Does that mean that I need to think more carefully about having people who are finishers around me? (laughs) So I like to start things. No, it's just, you know, trying on for size. And then like all things, I think the rule is to hold these things lightly, Amantha. 
Now, you mentioned that collaboration is something that you love. And I want to know when you first start a project with someone else or a group of people, what's the first thing that you want to know about that person or people? When I'm working with someone, I go to superpowers pretty quickly. So my fundamental philosophy is that, you know, I look for the best in people and that people want to do a good job and they want to be in flow and they want to be feeling like they're doing their best work and reaching their highest potential. And the way in there is to be quite explicit about superpowers and maybe even helping them find their superpowers. We each tip our superpowers in the pot and support each other to do our best work and therefore it's fun and therefore it's <laughs> you know, energetic and we also help each other, you know, with the shadow side as well. But if you're playing to your, you know, strengths and throwing that in the pot, then it just feels like it's joyful, right? And then that just, and then beautiful things happen. So is a superpower just like a strength? Yeah, it's a strength, but it's so unique to you that it becomes a superpower. So what's an example of that for you? Uh, a superpower for me is probably this finding the sunshine in others. Underpinning that is this innate curiosity and, you know, empathy. What about you? Well, what about me? What's one of my superpowers? Well, I did just want to ask, and maybe uh, this is because curiosity is a value of mine as well. How did you uncover that, that that's your superpower? So the life flow exercise helps a little bit with reflection on, you know, when I'm at my best, what am I tipping in? And then that attitude of if every day is a lab day, when have I used my superpower and what has been the result? And if the result is, wow, that was such a joyful experience, um, then you're on to the right thing, you know. So, for example, you know, writing this book with a co-author, Monique Ross, when we are in flow, it's when we are fundamentally throwing in our superpowers and helping each other do that. And so for me, another superpower of mine is this sort of creativity. And so she has allowed me, so she's very structured, but within that she gave me enough flexibility that I could just throw in those crazy ideas and then we would help each other sort of develop those. So that's how we would share those superpowers. Did that make sense? It did. It did. It's funny. When I think of you, I feel like one of your superpowers is being like a, a little energizer bunny and like add, adding that as an ingredient to a project, like just the the energy that you bring, I think makes you quite unique, the level of energy. Does that resonate with you? Yes, and that's a really interesting point because you can also do superpowers for projects. And in one of my last projects, we helped each other develop our superpowers as a kind of team exercise and getting to know you. We knew each other a little bit. And because I was leading the project, they gave me the superpower of Atomic North Star <laughs> and so that is like that power, the little power punch. 
and the North Star because I was kind of leading it. Um, so that's an example of how you can personalize the superpowers and have fun. And then we did team cards. So you do them like player cards or like a baseball swap card. And you put your superpowers in there, but you might even put in different dimensions of yourself like, uh, you know, I don't even know what those dimensions were, but you choose what you think might be helpful for others and then you can put that in your baseball swap cards as well so that you get to know your team members. It's quite fun. That's awesome. And now I didn't want to evade your question before. What are my superpowers? I reckon I've I've got a couple that come to mind and let me know if this resonates with you. So I reckon I... I'm highly enthusiastic. Like if I'm into something uh, and I, and that's where I focus my energy, like when I'm into something, I'm very, very enthusiastic and I think that I feel like that would be a superpower. I feel like that enthusiasm becomes contagious and is, is good for the team. So that would be one. And then the second one I feel a superpower of mine is making complex science. And what I mean by that is science that's been published in academic peer-reviewed journal papers, which is often, you know, quite dense and sometimes limited in its practicality. I feel like I'm very good at making that simple and practical for people that I help. So they're, they're two, I think, that would be my superpowers. Can I throw something into the pot as well? Please do. Yes, you're enthusiastic and you also execute, like you get it done <laughs> and you do it with focus. You don't uh, you know, over-promise and under-deliver. Mm. So what is that? So it's sort of like you're an e- in enthusiastic enthusiastic executor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that comes from being quite extreme in terms of conscientiousness as a ah, personality trait, yeah, which funnily enough makes me a very good employee even though I haven't had a boss for like 15 years. Anyway, if anyone wants to hire me, I think I'd be really good. Now, for people that want to connect with you in some way, whether that be get your new book or listen to your podcast with the ABC. It's not a podcast. It's a show that became a podcast, I guess. Um, What is the best way for people to consume more Lisa? So the book, we have a website, thisworkinglifebook.com, and all the latest is on there. And then I'm on LinkedIn and I'm on Instagram and I'm on Facebook and I generally am under Lisa S. Leong or Lisa Leong. I think you can find me. Brilliant. Not Lisa Lepong. That was one of your nicknames. <laughs> I have so many, don't I? Yes. Lisa Lepong. Luckily, I left that in London with the tax office who registered me under that name, believe it or not. Official tax receipts under Lisa Lepong. <laughs> <laughs> I have them somewhere in my room. I don't know where they are, though. I'm, I think I'm just, I'm going to be calling you Lepong from now you on. You can call me Lepong. I can't go back to Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> Some people from London call me Lepong. Well, Lepong, it's been such a joy chatting to you, doing a full-length interview because you've been on before in short form. This has just been super, super fun. Definitely a rose for me. Thank you so much for listening to my chat with Lisa. I hope you got some good little tips from it that will help you with your work and how you think about work. 
Now, if you are not a subscriber or follower of How I Work, now is the time to hit that subscribe or follow button because next week I'm very excited to share my chat with Michael Mosley, who you might know as the world-renowned BBC health journalist. And Michael will be sharing the tips and tricks that have had the biggest impact on his health. How I Work is produced by Inventium with production support from Deadset Studios. The producer for this episode was Liam Reardon. And thank you to Martin Imber, who does the audio mix for every show and makes everything sound better than it would have otherwise. See you next time.